is a popular popular podcast. Do not be afraid. Welcome to Popular History, a library of Catholic knowledge and insights brought to you daily. The historical stuff happens during the week, plus a modern cardinal on Saturdays. Sundays, we'll take a little bit of a break by covering some related topic, often as part of a multi-part Sunday series. Today is a Sunday and we're continuing our efforts to condense and summarize the classic long-form content of popular history, what's now the solemn high pod that we do on or near solemnities, into three to six minute chunks suitable for the new daily crowd. These summaries have about a tenth of the runtime of the originals, so if something really grabs your interest, feel free to pope on back to the original episode, it's linked in the show notes, for more in-depth analysis and a whole lot more tangents. Today, we're continuing our efforts to epitomize popular history's principal content with our summary of episode 8.11, Rome, Part 4, The Rule of Three. Last episode ended with the death of the Roman dictator Sulla, who, after a fair amount of back and forth, had overcome his mentor Marius, the first to well and truly seize control of Rome, though even that had recent precedent. For instance, the murder of Tiberius Gracchus, I covered at the start of last episode, had been incited by Tiberius's decision to run for an encore of what was very much supposed to be a one-off role. Oh, and he also had the other tribune disposed when he opposed his policies, so Tiberius Gracchus was a martyr, sure, but saint, no. Anyways, we're past the generations of the Gracchi, and Marius, and Sulla. Things accelerate from here. The first master of the next generation was Pompey the Great, who had wrung the great part out of Sulla, and who, according to Cicero, seems to have mused, Sulla potuit, ego non potero? If Sulla could, why can't I? Indeed, there were few things Pompey Magnus couldn't do. For instance, it was Pompey who did more than anyone else to add the Holy Land to Rome's portfolio. Not to mention, it was Pompey who had already helped defeat Spartacus, that shockingly effective ex-slave general of the Third and Greatest Servile War. I say helped because it was actually Pompey's ally Crassus who got the honor of actually annihilating that particular enemy of the Roman state. And yes, we should also talk about Crassus. The oldest of the group, Crassus was also the least decorated militarily of the three we'll be focusing on in this section. After all, He's not called Crassus the Great. He never would get a triumph, that most distinguished of Roman military honors, in part because his victory over Spartacus, though significant and important, wasn't seen as noble enough for him to earn such praise. It was bad form to celebrate a triumph as the victor in a Roman civil war, for one, and for two, from the Roman elite perspective, this wasn't even that, since the opposition was just lowly slaves. Slaves who had beaten consuls, sure, but slaves nonetheless. What Crassus lacked in military honors, he more than made up for financially, being the richest man in Rome. In a way, it's impressive that Crassus got to that height, because ancient sources point to him accumulating that wealth on his own rather than inheriting it. Though, to be sure, it wasn't exactly by the sweat of his brow, so much as it was things like a uh, cornering the market on fire brigades, and then refusing to put out fires until the property owners deeded the building and land over to Crassus. 
smooth. The youngest of the three men, the Triumviri, as they would come to be known, was one Julius Caesar, who was to politics what Crassus was to money, and Pompey was to war. Of course, given that this alliance of three, tri, men, vir, think virile, and throw on an um there, because you're trying to think of what the middle part is for, but aren't coming up with anything. What does that spell? Triumvirate. Anyways, given that triumvirate was a political alliance, well, you can see how Captain Politics won in the end. And yeah, you're right, it is a shame that I'm skipping all the specifics. But reminder, this is a summary episode, and the full original is in the show notes. Plus, we're getting into some of the most written-about scenes in all of history. So, I'm far from your only resource if you want to know more. The Triumvirs consolidated power for themselves and their loyalists, overcoming opposition, but also developing their own internal tensions while they were at it. After Crassus died in the East, chasing the sort of triumphs Pompey and Caesar would enjoy, the tensions between the two men left standing gradually increased until the real year of rupture in 49 BC, when Caesar famously crossed the Rubicon at the head of an army. The Rubicon, to be clear, was the northern boundary marker of core Roman territory. And to be even clearer, he wasn't supposed to do that. Caesar's march on Rome managed to get Pompey and much of the opposition to flee, like Marius had once fled before Sulla. After all, Caesar was the younger man, so it was now his turn to ask, like Pompey had once said, if Sulla could, why can't I? It turns out Caesar absolutely could, and Pompey would end up beheaded by a pharaoh looking to win Caesar's friendship, an offer which, as it happens, was declined, a result that may have had something to do with Caesar's opinion of that pharaoh's sister, the famous Cleopatra, who apparently bore the now undisputed master of the Roman world, a son, the following year. I know our narrative is careening at this point, and well, that's by design. This was an intense period. Two years later, on the Ides of March in 44 BC, Julius Caesar was famously assassinated by a conspiracy of Roman senators. He left quite a legacy, but founding the Roman Empire was not a part of his legacy. We'll get to that next week. Thank you for listening. God bless you all.